Welcome to this week's edition of Fair Territory. And yes, believe it or not, we have action. We have a member of the Boris Four agreeing to a contract. It is now the Boris Three. Cody Bellinger in agreement with the Cubs on a three-year, $80 million deal with opt-outs after the first and second year. Now, for Bellinger, this is a somewhat surprising outcome. And I wrote about this Sunday. If you didn't read it in The Athletic, what I basically said is, the projections for him by some of the outside experts, Tim Britton of The Athletic was about $162 million for six years. MLB trade rumors had him at $264 for 12. Well, he didn't get that. You can make the case that if a long-term deal wasn't available to him, then a short-term deal enabling him to go back on the market next season is the most desirable outcome. So what happened here? Let's start with the impact on Bellinger, and then we can talk about the Cubs a little bit. What happened was... Bellinger was a flawed free agent in a market that is not turning out to be as robust as perhaps some of us expected. And he also is represented by Scott Boris, who played this out and may, may have overplayed his hand. And I say may because we don't have a full scorecard here yet. Remember, he has the opt-out after this year. Another big year. He goes back into the market at age 29, could get a monster deal then. Correa followed this path. Adrian Beltre followed this path. These are guys represented by Boris. It's been done before. But for Bellinger, well, let's take a look at his stats from last year. National League Comeback Player of the Year. 10th in the MVP balloting. And look at these numbers. They're quite good. 307 batting average, 26 homers, 97 RBIs, 881 OPS. And yet, I said he was a flawed free agent, and he was flawed for a couple of reasons. One, he had those two difficult seasons in 2021 and 22, injury marred seasons, granted, but he was non-tendered by the Dodgers, so he had sort of that black mark against him. And these stats that you're looking at here are another reason why clubs were hesitant to go too long on Bellinger. Weighted on base average and expected weighted on base average. For those not familiar with these stats, weighted on base average is a way to measure not just a player getting on base, but how he gets on base. It's weighted. So a double is worth more than a single or a walk. A home run is worth more than a double and vice versa. Expected weighted on base average is the expected outcomes according to stat cast measures such as exit velocity. The difference between Bellinger's expected and actual numbers were alarming to some clubs. It showed that, well, perhaps he was lucky. And perhaps what he did was unsustainable. So that was a problem. And another problem was the market. It has been, as I wrote, a surprisingly tepid market. The Mets and Padres are not spending the way they did in recent seasons. The Phillies spent on Aaron Nola, but haven't done much else besides that. You have other teams, a number of other teams, facing uncertainty in their future local television revenue, and that has caused their owners to pull back a little bit. So you didn't have this robust group of teams bidding for all these different free agents. And yet, at the same time, he's Cody Bellinger, he's 28 years old. I feel quite comfortable saying Scott Boris ideally wanted a longer deal. And what this means now for the other members of the Boris Four, Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, Matt Chapman, well, it remains to be seen, but as I wrote, I imagine it's going to embolden the general managers, presidents of baseball operations of the teams pursuing those players because they saw the Cubs held the line, I'm going to hold the line. He's not getting what Boris wants. We're going to wait and wait till we get the price we want.
Now for the Cubs, obviously this is an outstanding outcome. President of Baseball Operations, Jed Hoyer, at the start of the offseason, if you had told him you're going to get Bellinger for three years and 80 with two opt-outs, granted, he would have taken that every day of the week. He's had a pretty good offseason, Jed Hoyer, as far as playing the market. He got Imanaga on what is perceived to be a reasonable price, Hector Neris on a one-year deal, and now Bellinger to a deal that, again, is not what many of us expected. So the Cubs needed a number three hitter or a number four hitter, a middle-of-the-order hitter, I should say. They needed a left-handed bat. Cody Bellinger gives them that. He can play center field, buying some time for Pete Crow Armstrong. He can play first base if Crow Armstrong emerges. You have all kinds of options now. Are the Cubs this dynamic, amazing World Series frontrunner? No, but they should be a force in the NL Central. And in attending their camp the other day, actually I've been there a couple of days, they're really excited about their young talent coming through. Crow Armstrong is one, but some pitchers as well. They feel they're on the verge of having some of these prospects pop. And when that happens, you surround them with better players. Well, you are surrounding them with better players like Bellinger. And then maybe, just maybe, you have something special building. Something like what they had in 2015 and 16. So now we get to the rest of the market. We'll see what happens with Snell, with Montgomery, with Chapman. I would not be surprised if they take deals that are similar to what Bellinger accepted from the Cubs. Shorter term with opt-outs so they can get back into the market at maybe a time when the market will be better, at maybe a time when clubs will have a better idea of what the future television and streaming looks like, and at a time when the Mets will be back in play, and perhaps the Yankees too if they don't get Juan Soto. Remember, they didn't spend much on free agents this year either, the Yankees. They acquired Soto, and that was their big move, and a great one for that matter. Time now for the Inside Dish. This is the part of the show where I go inside a story I've written, inside a trend in the game, or riff completely on something else entirely. This week, I'm actually going to talk about two stories that I wrote recently because I thought that both kind of had interesting backstories to them. The first was the lengthy story I wrote with Stephen Nesbitt last week about the Pirates and about where they stand as they enter year five under general manager Ben Sherrington. And I wrote this story with Stephen because about six weeks ago or so, maybe it was even December, I can't remember exactly, I thought, what's up with the Pirates? What's going on with them? Are they actually developing players? Are they ever going to spend money? We need to ask some questions here. So Stephen and I started asking some questions, started calling former employees, former players, current players, all kinds of people. We spoke to more than 20 people in total. And this story was kind of built around the idea that Bob Nutting believes that they now can contend. They're now ready to contend. Here's what he told us for the story. To quote from Bob Nutting, the owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates, he said, we collectively believe we can compete for the division and a postseason berth. Now, most other people don't believe that. The Pirates are projected to finish last by most everyone. They have spent the least amount of money in free agency of any team in the National League Central. Their farm system is pretty good. It's ranked ninth by Keith Law, but the other teams in the NL Central are all in the top 15 as well. So it's not like the Pirates are way above anyone. And yes, we focused on Nutting's lack of spending. And yes, the day after the story came out, they signed Mitch Keller to a five-year, $77 million extension. 
The Pirates have done that on occasion. They've signed players to extensions. But when you don't spend in free agency, and this is the heart of what we were driving at, when you don't spend in free agency, you've got to nail player development. You've got to nail scouting. You've got to nail international. Are the Pirates doing that? The questions we asked in the story, in my mind, were legitimate questions about how that process is going. They have some players, and they have some players coming, and Ben Sherrington told us for the story they're going to get multiple major league contributors. It's certainly possible, and the verdict is not in yet. But have they developed like the Orioles or the Dodgers? No, they have not, and they have to. They don't have a choice because nothing is not going to spend on free agents. And also part of the story was the interesting interlude with Cabrian Hayes, the third baseman, and their former double-A hitting coach, John Nunnally. Hayes went to Nunnally last season because he needed help. He was tired of not performing to the level he did in his rookie year, and he wanted to go to someone he trusted, has had success with, and it happened to be the guy not in the major league staff, but the guy at double-A. Players use outside hitting coaches all the time. It's not uncommon Sometimes they're outside the organization entirely. In fact, often they are. It's pretty rare when they go inside the organization. But the whole situation kind of spoke to a conflict that goes on with many clubs, an enduring conflict between the old school and new school. Not only was more of an old school guy, the Pirates have gone more new school in some of their teachings. And for whatever reason, this just did not work out. The Pirates let not only go at the end of the season. Bottom line is, we at The Athletic are going to continue to write these stories and explore different teams that are struggling. I've done it in combination with some of our writers on several teams at this point. Dennis Lynn with the Padres, Nick Groke when he was with us on the Rockies. I've written about the Marlins. To me, these teams are worthy of deeper explorations. And I know some fans were wondering about the timing of the story, and that's fair because spring training, right, is supposed to be a time of optimism. But I would ask in response, what exactly is the right time to drop a story like this? Is it opening day? Is it the start of the offseason? It's never going to be a happy time or a happy occasion. Now, I do appreciate a lot of Pirates fans tweeting at Stephen and I the next day saying, hey, you guys criticize them for their lack of spending and they just signed Mitch Keller. Write another article and maybe we'll get O'Neill Cruz. Well, that's not how it works. We're not going to do that. But you know what? The Pirates should explore an extension with O'Neill Cruz. Now on to another story I wrote last week, this one about free agent left-hander Eduardo Rodriguez, who agreed to a four-year, $80 million contract with the Arizona Diamondbacks early in the offseason. Looks like a pretty good deal, considering that Blake Snell's still out there, Jordan Montgomery's still out there, and Eduardo Rodriguez has $80 million guaranteed coming. And what I wrote about, and I talked about this on foul territory, is that in the early days of camp, Rodriguez has taken on a leadership role with the Diamondbacks. He's kind of mentoring their younger pitchers. I wrote about a scene in the clubhouse where he got down on his knees, kind of got into a sprinter's position as if he was a sprinter in a starting block and explained in Spanish to three younger pitchers that Usain Bolt trains four years to run 10 seconds. And that's the way he fine tunes his mechanics, his body, his positioning. And pitchers should do the same to get to the point where you don't even have to think about how you're throwing the pitch. You just have your body so in sync, you throw it. It was a fun story to work on, and yet I anticipated and received some blowback from Tigers fans who said, whoa, 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 wait a second. 
This cat in 2022 took more than two months off, was away from the team on the restricted list because of issues that were reported later to be marital problems. He bailed on the Tigers. And last year, 2023 trade deadline, he rejected a trade to the Dodgers that, of course, could have brought the Tigers some prospects. Understood. All of that is fair. But when I look at players, when I write, when I look at teams for that matter, I have to stay open-minded. And I kind of have to write what I see. Now, certainly the past is informing the present as well. And I wrote about all of those things that happened with the Tigers and tried to give some context there. But as I said on foul territory, just because the Tigers fans or certain Tigers fans have a narrative in their heads that essentially Eduardo Rodriguez is a bum, that narrative is not permanent. That narrative can change. And he talked to me about Pedro Martinez and how Pedro mentored him with the Red Sox and how he wants to do the same for younger players. He did that in Detroit last year when he had his life straightened out, when he was just in a better place emotionally and mentally. Will he sustain this? I don't know. And maybe he won't. And I know some people who follow the Red Sox probably were questioning this whole idea of him as a leader as well. But again, I saw it in my own eyes and I got this idea initially from someone with the Diamondbacks, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And Rodriguez was already in camp and he was impressed, this person with the Diamondbacks was, by what Rodriguez was doing, not just with his work, but with the way he was dealing with younger players and reaching out to them and being a positive force for them. So I went to the camp, saw it for myself with my own eyes and decided it was worth writing. If I have to eat these words, if I have to eat my words on the Pirates, it wouldn't be the first time. All right, dude and dork of the week. The dude of the week is an entity. It's a group. It is a legion of Oakland A's fans who turned out created their own fan fest and pulled the thing off. From what I understand, thousands of people were there. Foul Territory was there, Scott Braun and Mark Wiener. And it was something to behold. It was a true grassroots experience for those fans. And it was a statement as well to Oakland, to the Oakland A's, to Major League Baseball, that people care. People really care in Oakland. And granted, it's a small number of people going to the games, has been for a few years. Yes, because that's the way the team has been run. It's been run to basically alienate the fan base. But there is a fan base there, and you put a successful team on the field in a new ballpark, try them. Try and see how they respond at that point. Because you know what? That place, Oakland, the Bay Area, the East Bay, there is a group there that is waiting to embrace this team again. It's not going to happen, I don't think. I do believe they're going to Vegas. But the Oakland A's fans, dudes of the week, cool fan fest, awesome event. I tip my hat to you guys. That was great. Dork of the week. Oh, I will give it to another entity. This entity being Major League Baseball. And it's not for its conduct with the Oakland A's move to Las Vegas, though that could be dork of the week in another respect. It's about the uniform situation, the see-through pants, the small letters, the whole kibosh. Now, I know MLB has been putting out statements and defending itself. Nike has been putting out statements defending themselves. Guys, the players aren't happy. That's your constituency. And we can argue all day about whether these pants are see-through or not. MLB seems to want to have an argument about that. To me, the most glaring issue 
is the fact that the letters on the jerseys are smaller than before. We were supposed to be marketing this game, promoting the players, giving voice and visibility to the great talent that exists in Major League Baseball today. And effectively, we're making their names harder to see. You tell me how that makes sense. And MLB, again, is taking a defensive position as they often do when under fire. And I get it. They feel that they tested these things at the All-Star Game. They didn't hear much blowback. It's not that big a deal. Maybe they have a point. But you know what? Your players are unhappy. Your fans are saying, what the heck is going on? And you know what? Also, it would be nice once in a while for this league to say, hey, we screwed up. Let's fix this. And we can do it pretty easily. It's uniforms for crying out loud. You should be able to manufacture another set. Dorks of the week, MLB. Time now for Grilling Ken. Let's get to the questions. The first one comes from Jerry Kale. Jerry asks, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, first of all, Jerry. But you ask, after all that happened, do you think the Mariners are a better team this year? This is an interesting question because a lot happened with the Mariners this offseason. It started with ownership freaking out over their local television situation, Jerry DePoto needing to cut payroll. He traded Jared Kelenic with some other money. He traded Eugenio Suarez, and then he traded Robbie Ray in a deal that brought back Mitch Hanniger. They acquired along the way, in addition to Hanniger, Luke Raley. They picked up Gregory Santos from the White Sox, and their final move was a really good one, Jorge Polanco from the Twins. So are they a better team? It's difficult to know. It's a different team. They want it to be more contact-oriented. But they could be better because their starting pitching is that good. They're going to be in games. And they've also shown that they can put together a bullpen. So with the starting group they have, Luis Castillo and George Kirby, Logan Gilbert, Brian Wu, Bryce Miller. That's a pretty formidable five right there. They don't have the depth that they once did, but that's a good group. They've shown an ability to put together good bullpens. So the question is, will they score more runs? That's an open question. But I like Polanco. If Hanniger stays healthy, I know we say that every year. He is a formidable offensive player. Luke Raley was a good addition as well. So I'm interested to see the Mariners. Bottom line, I thought DePoto and his general manager, Justin Hollander, did as good a job as they possibly could have under the circumstances. All right, next question comes from JC, who asks, there is no possible way for the Angels to replace Otani but why does it feel like they're not really trying that hard to get better this offseason? Good question, JC. They haven't done a whole lot. And I get people saying, well, where are the Angels? What is their vision? That is always a fair question with the Angels. They've made some moves to upgrade their bullpen. They've done things on the edges. They haven't really made a big move. Certainly not any move that will even come close to replacing the offense that they lost with Otani going to the Dodgers. They feel that if their position group stays healthy, and again, huge if, that it's a pretty good team, a pretty good offensive team. Now, of course, this requires Trout to be on the field. It requires Rendon to be on the field. No guarantee either of those guys will be on the field for as much as the Angels want. They feel that their pitching can be better than it was last year, and they feel that their bullpen is a bit improved. We'll see. Robert Stevenson certainly was a big signing for them, and he will help. But would you like to see them do one more thing? I guess you would. I don't know if they're going to spend on pitching. Artie Moreno, when he has spent in the past, has spent on hitters, not pitchers. So they are who they are. And I'm not sure where they are. No one seems to be sure where they are. But 
It all starts with Trout being on the field and Rendon being on the field. If that happens, this team could be mildly interesting. Final question comes from a depressed Cincy fan. Depressed Cincy fan asked, which team didn't make the playoffs last year would you pick to make it this year? How about if I undepress depressed Cincy fan and predict that the Reds are going to make the playoffs? I was at Reds camp yesterday, in fact, and there is a lot of optimism there. Granted, there is a lot of optimism at all 30 camps, even the White Sox, even the Pirates. But the Reds feel that they're really deep on the position player side, and they feel that their young pitching is coming on and will supplement what they've added. Frankie Montas looks great. Nick Martinez will be a valuable guy, as he's always been. Emilio Pagan coming to the bullpen as well. John McClandelario joining the offensive side of it. That team has a good vibe about it. And I don't know what it translates to. They're still awfully young in many areas. But they're going to be quite interesting. And that central, the NL central, is going to be wide open. The Brewers, I believe, will be better than a lot of us think, even without Corbin Burns. The Cubs got better this weekend with Cody Ballinger. The Pirates feel they're coming, despite what I wrote about them with Steven Nesbitt. And overall, this is a division that seems to be one that is there for the taking. So depressed Reds fan or depressed Cincy fan, you heard it here first. The Reds are making the playoffs. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks for watching. Thanks for all your questions as well. You know where to find us, YouTube, Apple, Spotify. Subscribe to us, like us, and remember, watch Foul Territory as well. That show has been hot as of late. We'll be back next week. Place your first BetMGM Sportsbook wager through the app of at least five bucks. You will receive $150 instantly in additional winnings regardless of your wager's outcome. Gotta use the bonus code FOUL, F-O-U-L, when you download the app you're a new customer sign up and deposit at least five bucks into the account place a wager in the amount of at least five bucks at standard odds price once you place that bet you'll receive 150 dollars in bonus bets regardless of the outcome of your wager gambling problem or concern call 100